the organiser. Tell, tell, tell me a story, Grandad, Helen said, while bouncing on her bed. She laughed manically as she jumped up and down, while her granddad serenely sat on the edge of the duvet, cleaning his glasses with the bottom of his shirt. He calmly looked up and then yawned. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't, he said slowly. It all depends on whether you're going to stop all this nonsense. Instantly, Helen stopped the jumping in one blurry movement, was inside the bed covers, lying completely still. Good. OK, then. What will it be tonight, my darling? He said, standing up uncomfortably in some pain and then heading towards Helen's small bookshelf with its colourful collection of titles. Your story! she said, smiling at him. Yeah, which one would that be? He said, stopping to look at her. The one you keep writing down, she said, laughing at her own description. Then he smiled. Ah, I don't think you're ready for that story yet, my darling. What about Harry Potter? Nah, 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 it's boring, boring. I want your story. She sat up in bed folding her arms into a mock anger pose. The grandfather shook his head in dismay and sat back down on the edge of the duvet. Uh, I want that story, that story, please, yeah, 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 that story, that story, that story, please, 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 that story, that story, that story, that story. She grabbed at his arm until he looked at her with a wry smile. OK, only on two conditions. One, you lie back, tuck yourself in and be very quiet. She nodded eagerly to his first demand, and very quickly, with back under the covers, with only her head peeking out. Very good, Helen. Secondly, you must promise me never to tell your mother or your grandmother that I told you this story. OK? She nodded in agreement, and he appeared to consider her response carefully for a while, before putting his glasses back on, taking a deep breath, and beginning the tale. There once was a girl named Lucy, who from the age of nothing had everything she ever could want. Every Christmas and birthday, gifts were furnished upon her in such multitudes that her parents had to order at least two skips to dispose of all the wrapping paper. Some fantastical birthdays took Lucy over two days to actually unwrap all her presents. Why did everyone love her so much to award her so flamboyantly? Was she amazingly beautiful? Was she extremely charismatic? Was she a witch that had everyone in her thrall? A solid no is the answer to all those questions. She was pretty, but not stunning, very shy, and had no magical powers whatsoever. The reason gifts were lavished so freely upon her was simply down to her parents. Dorothy and Nigel Bent were the slow-beating heart of the community. They owned everything that made the Tower of Shireton what it was, mainly being the steel mills. The mills generated over 80% of the town's employment and formed nearly all of the town's wealth. So, everyone had to bow down to Dorothy and Nigel Bent. They controlled the politics of the town, the design of the town, and most importantly, the people 
of the town. They could decide what school you would go to, what job you could have, and even what colour your house would be. White chiffon. Every house had to be white chiffon without question, a rule imposed by Dorothy Bent 15 years ago when she saw a feature in a magazine on Princess Diana's summer house in France. Everyone had also to be off the streets, including cars, by 11.15 every night so Nigel could have a comfortable silence when he went to bed at exactly 11.20. If a dog barked, it wasn't there the next day. If a cat screeched, the owners knew Tiddles wouldn't be coming home for food tomorrow morning. One couple, last year, in a fit of madness, painted their house bright pink and held a dinner party on a Monday that went on way past midnight. Next day, their house was repossessed, they were given their P45s by lunchtime, and by the early evening, their possessions were being loaded into a bent steel lorry by a collection of big burly gentlemen who some people would call local characters. They were never seen or talked about again, and the very next day, the house was painted back to white chiffon. So, when 16 years ago, Dorothy Bent gave birth to a healthy £6, two-ounce baby girl called Lucy, the town knew it would have to start paying. The birth itself was spectacular, as Dorothy insisted that the local hospital and its 200 doctors and 600 nurses' only medical priority that day should be her. All other patients and procedures were moved to the local sports hall, whereby anyone with a smattering of medical knowledge helped care for the sick. Over 20 people died that day due to the birth of Lucy Bent, and apart from the private grief of the loved ones, their names were never mentioned again. Everyone tried to better the other in their gifts for Lucy Bent. Stars in the sky were named after her, racehorses were bought for her that won the national, dolls from every country around the world adorned her bedroom. Dogs, cats, birds, hamsters, rabbits, quails, tigers, monkeys, lemurs, elephants and penguins were only a few of the animals bought for her in the last 15 years. A town zoo was built in her name, where all the animals were looked after by the residents in their meagre spare time. And of course, the only visitor allowed to this wonderful place was Lucy. Now, you would have thought that growing up having everything you wanted and being raised by two mean dictators of parents would turn you into a somewhat spoilt, horrid, selfish human being. But no. The opposite happened, and Lucy blossomed into a kind, thoughtful, considerate young adult, much to the detestment of Dorothy and Nigel Bent. She's weak, said Dorothy Bent. When aged 11, Lucy helped set up a free food delivery service for the over-80s. There was no social care in Shyanton, or help the aged, or hospices. The dead just disappeared. Wet beyond the ears, announced Nigel Bent, when Lucy, aged 14, set up an orphanage for the families of dead steel workers. The funds were raised by her selling off a large proportion of her presents and possessions. Other funds were raised by selling some of the animals to other zoos. We need to do something about her, said Dorothy to Nigel Bent in hushed tones, two months before Lucy's 16th birthday party. The cause of their discomfort was a daily newspaper Lucy had set up in Shireton called The Wake Up 
It gave the public frank and truthful accounts of the everyday workers of Shireton. People's problems, disgruntlements and misgivings were aired without their real names being mentioned or hinted. What frightened them the most was the investigations the paper was pursuing into the works of bent steel itself. In particular, was its focus on what goes into making the flux mixture that makes bent steel famous throughout the world. It was getting too dangerous now, and something had to be done. Daughter or not, nothing, and I mean nothing, could upset the peaceful utopia of the Bent's presence in Shireton. So the big day came when Lucy turned 16, and the Bent's hired the biggest hotel in town to celebrate. Lucy sat embarrassed at the head table in a bright white chiffon dress, picked out by her mother who sat to the left of her, eating a huge amount of birthday cake while spitting the crumbs out to the poor tables below. Nigel Bent was examining the presents already given to Lucy through a monocle, and either he would kiss his teeth in displeasure or nod in gratification. It was always the most expensive that got the nod and the least expensive that got the famous teeth kiss. The name of the unfortunate giver was then placed into a large black book. Lucy had refused the previous week to go through the whole event, but it was only when her father threatened to bulldoze a local primary school that she backed down. The long queue of present bearers on the slow journey to the head table was nearly coming to the end. And after eight gruelling hours, Lucy had opened 2,000 presents. She had received a wide selection of gifts this year, from a flash motorbike to a Shetland pony, all nearly bursting on and around the hefty present table. Lucy was now trying to work out how much she could sell it all for to try and raise funds for the new cancer ward when her father stood up and banged on the table with a large hammer. Order, please, order, he said. And the guests immediately went into silence. He scanned the room daring anyone to make a sound. Sixteen years ago, me and my beautiful wife were blessed with a little baby girl. Someone at the back started to clap, but immediately was shut up by Nigel Bent's famous scowl. He remembered the clapper's face for later and then carried on. Lucy has now blossomed into a interesting young woman with her whole life in front of her. He now looked directly at Lucy. Her whole life. Dorothy Bent kicked her husband violently under the table. He stopped staring at Lucy, then looked out to the masses again. Shireton is a perfect town, which cannot be compared to anywhere else. But, in order to appreciate the beauty that is our world, you've had to experience the rest of the shit. He fumbled in his inside jacket pocket, producing a white envelope. So, my darling, our present to you is a... All expenses paid round the world, year-long cruise. The whole room gasped in shock, and people then started to realise what this meant. No more Lucy. No more help. No more hope. Security guards at the back of the hall 
started to encourage a round of applause, but everyone was too astonished to clap. Nigel Bent turned to his daughter and then said, One more thing, my love. It leaves tomorrow morning. Lucy felt that she'd been punched in the face. Her father stood smiling at her like the Cheshire cat who had just eaten the Mad Hatter. She knew that her parents were getting her out of Shireton forever and that the cruise would never end. Maybe they were planning something more devious, something deadly for Lucy on the open seas. They couldn't stoop that low, could they? thought Lucy. Whilst looking at her mother, who was throwing her wine over a waitress because she wasn't cleaning away the dishes fast enough. Lucy then wondered what the outside world would be like. Places like Rome and Hong Kong sounded so exotic and dreamlike. She would love to experience what they could offer, and maybe she wasn't doing any good here anymore. Maybe it was a fight she would always lose. She was also endangering others as well in her crusade. Innocents who wouldn't be so lucky to be sent around the world on a cruise for causing trouble. She made a decision. Thank you, father, mother. I accept, said Lucy, to the gasp of the crowd in the lavish hotel ballroom. Her father leapt into the air with a whoop, and her mother ran over, planting a wet kiss on her cheek. <laughs> you know it makes sense, darling, Dorothy Bent said to her daughter, whilst giving a thumbs up to her husband behind her back. Lucy just nodded sadly not daring to look out into the crowd at her fellow townspeople crestfallen expressions. She looked instead over to the present table where the Shetland pony was eating all the discarded wrapping paper. She then spotted on the corner of the large table an unopened present. It was a rectangular-shaped object about the size of a milk tray chocolate box with pure white wrapping paper and a white bow. There's another present she said almost to herself. Her father heard her and looked over to the table. He grunted after spotting the white wrapped box and walked across to it to grab it. As his hand went towards the present, a short bolt of electricity leaked out from the box and ploughed into Nigel Bent's hand. Jesus! he exclaimed loudly, while holding his hands between his legs and jumping up and down. The crowd cried out in shock. Someone laughed. Dorothy Bent thought it came from her daughter. The security forces ran towards the table in aid of Nigel Bent, drawing their weapons at the same time. When they got near the box, more bolts of electricity leaked out, striking them on bottoms, groin areas, mouth and other comedic areas. In the panic, Lucy got up unnoticed, walked to the table and without thinking, picked the white rat present up in her right hand. Nothing happened. Not even a spark. Her father stopped jumping around in panic and looked in bewilderment at his daughter. Who sent you this death trap? Lucy looked down at the white package in her hand and read out loud to the ballroom the writing on the gift card. To Lucy, a, a gift that could be heaven or hell. Yours, Melik, she read. Oh, the hell is Melik, Dorothy Bent shouted out to the crowd. A nervous murmur was the reply from the throng, followed by silence. Sounds foreign. Is he one of the forge workers? She asked Nigel Bent, who just shrugged his shoulders in reply. If anyone can find me this Melik in one hour, 
we can begin talking about health care, shouted Nigel Bent. Bring him or her to me, dead or alive. I'm not bothered. He was interrupted by a figure at the back of the ballroom, bursting through the double doors and collapsing dramatically onto the ground. Another silence followed, and then the figure jumped to its feet. The throng offered a unified whoa noise at the sight of a seven-foot-tall figure in front of them. Dressed entirely in a dirty white suit with a long white overcoat that concealed a large hump on the back of the man or woman, he was a thing. No one could work out the sex of the figure. It seemed to morph between the two in an instant. In one hand, it held a cigar. In the other, a large glass which contained a greenish cocktail with a huge sparkler fizzing away on top. There is one more present she hasn't opened yet, said the figure in white, with a voice that could unlock doors. This time, the silence was that of embarrassment, which after a short while was broken by Lucy, who held up the president in her right hand. Um, I know. I found it, she said. The figure seemed to consider this and looked back to where it came from and then back to Lucy. Oh, was its reply in a very normal voice. I only went to the bar for a moment. What did I miss? It continued, puzzled. Did the, did the present do its booby trap thing? Yeah, it bloody did, said a very angry Nigel Bent. Suddenly, the figure exploded into laughter and fell again onto the floor. The crowd, noticing the figure was drunk, mad and weird, started to back away from it, leaving it rolling about on the floor in hysterics on its own. Nigel Bent motioned with his hands to his security forces, who started to flank the figure stealthily from both sides of the hall. Are you Malik? said Lucy, as the figure's laughter died away. It stood up again, seeming to get taller and cleared its throat. Yes, I am Malik, and I come here today to... I come here to... I excuse me. Malik started to root through its overcoat for something and eventually pulled out some flashcards. Manic started to examine the flashcards, searching and discarding ones as he muttered, Nuns, Watergate, Safety, Level 19. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, here we are, here we are. Sorry about that, everyone. Manic looked up to Lucy, cleared its throat, and began its monologue again. I am Malik, and I come here today with a gift. A gift that could change your life. You stand on a crossroads. It is Lucy, isn't it? I can't, I can't read this in this light. Lucy nodded, and Melek continued. You stand at a crossroads, Lucy. Which direction will you take? One way leads to greatness, the other to despair. Choose wisely. It stopped, looked down at the flashcard, turned it over a couple of times to see if there was anything else to read, then satisfied, in a flick of the wrist, threw it onto the floor. Right, that's me done, I'm going back to the bar. The moment Melik turned to leave for more alcohol, the security team decided as one to make their move. They jumped towards Melik, ready to pin him or her to the ground. As they jumped, a slight blue neon light exploded around Melik and they were all propelled rapidly backwards across the room like they just bounced off a big rubber ball. Melik itself was completely oblivious 
and walked back towards the double doors through which he had fallen moments before. It stopped, turned, and looked back towards Lucy. Oh yeah. Happy birthday, kid. Melik left and vanished back to the bar. Later that evening, Lucy sat in her bedroom looking at the wrapped present for Melik. She took a deep breath and quickly unwrapped the beautifully bound package. Inside was a jet black metal rectangular object that looked like a mobile phone. There was one round white button on the bottom of the object while the rest of the space on the front was a visual display screen. There were no instructions or guidelines. So Lucy did what any one of us would have done in the same circumstance. She pressed the button. The screen instantly glimmered into life and exhibited a pure white background with black lettering that appeared across the middle. Hello, Lucy. Would you like to see tomorrow's schedule? Press button for yes. She pressed the button that indicated yes and watched as the machine started to think. After about a minute, the screen changed into a familiar electronic diary format. But the intriguing thing was that all the time slots were filled in. It read, Monday, 8 o'clock. Wake up feeling mournful and desolate. Try to eat breakfast but can't. Get ready for world trip. Nine o'clock. Decide to take one last walk around Shireton. Start at the town hall, move to the orphanage and then on to the bent factory. You walk slowly with heaviness. Ten o'clock. See two large men carrying a large suspicious looking sack into a back entrance of the forge. Have an indecisive moment then decide to follow. Smattering of rain begins. Eleven o'clock. While in the forge, you see two large men open the sack to reveal a dead man in there. You recognise him from the party yesterday, the one who clapped when no one else did. You feel sick, stroke revulsion, stroke fear. The two men drop the body into an iron chamber named Steel Flux. You take a photograph on your phone of this. Is this the secret ingredient? You think? You then run, stroke faint, stroke confront men. Twelve o'clock. You go to your newspaper offices and write out a report of what you've just seen and you print out copies of the photograph. You make packages of the report with photographs and address them to all police groups, newspapers and TV stations outside Shireton. Twenty minutes later, you post the packages. You feel elated, stroke scared, stroke cold. You ring Scotland Yard in London and fax through the information just to make sure. Sunshine appears at 55% coverage. One o'clock. You have lunch. Pasta with spinach. Two o'clock. You go back home to angry parents because you have just missed your flight. You tell them what you have seen and what you have done. There is five minutes of silence, five minutes of anger, five minutes of crying, then ten minutes of unpredictable chaos. You feel no emotion towards your parents at that moment. Something has shifted in your parent-relationship dynamic. Sirens are heard in the distance. Three o'clock. Your parents leave your house, escorted by the police. You sit down and feel emotionally drained, stroke happy, stroke bored. You sit like this for two hours, watching a drip of water slowly move down the window pane. Five o'clock. You turn on the TV. On the news are pictures of the mill, 
your parents and you. You think that you need to change your hairstyle. The phone rings. You start to think about the future, stroke past, stroke present. Three birds eat at the bird table in the garden. Six o'clock, you eat dinner. Salmon fillet with broccoli. Seven o'clock, you go outside and talk to the press. You say that the truth needed to be uncovered and the suffering has to stop in Shireton. Back inside, you cry for 20 minutes. Eight o'clock, you make phone calls to a lawyer, the family accountant and a PR firm and book appointments for tomorrow. You change into a black suit and go to the police station by taxi. Nine o'clock, you spend two hours giving your statement to three detectives and when asked if you want to see your parents, you say, no. A man trips over by the coffee machine. Eleven o'clock, you arrive back home and go straight to bed, exhausted. You are happy, stroke sad, stroke confused, stroke scared, stroke relieved. You view the next day on your organiser. Lucy, scroll to the last entry at eleven o'clock. Then try to see if she could get to the following day, but to no avail. There only seemed to be tomorrow programmed into the console and no other dates. She didn't know what to do. It all seemed so incredible. The next morning, Lucy did indeed wake up at eight o'clock. She felt mournful and desolate. She couldn't eat any breakfast, so went back upstairs to pack her clothes. She tried to resist going for a farewell walk around Shireton, but knew it was impossible not to find out the truth. And when at ten o'clock she saw the two men carrying the body-shaped sack into the forge, Lucy accepted the fact that the organiser had planned the day out perfectly. The rest of the entries in the organiser happened exactly as Lucy read it would, including the timing of emotions, the number of birds on the table and the cloud coverage. She walked out on cue, said her lines and took her exits. It was quite a relief and very calming to think that everything had been taken care of. When she went to bed that night, after the exhausting day of police, murder and family betrayal, she looked again at the organiser, which asked if she wanted to see the next day's schedule. Without a, a moment of hesitation, she pressed the button for yes. The next 16 years of Lucy's life were decided by the organiser's schedule. The organiser also seemed to plan every move of Lucy's with good fortune and sound advice. Nigel and Dorothy Bent were charged with mass murder over a period of 20 years and were given 65 life sentences each. The steel mill and all their other assets were frozen and on Lucy's advice sold so that the money could be given to the families of all the people who were lost to the flux machine. Lucy also took charge of who and what should be placed there instead of the mill and decided with the help from our organiser on a national recycling centre. This was done so that the people of Shireton could still keep the jobs from the closure of Bent Steel. Lucy still had a newspaper, also her zoo, which she at last opened to the general public. She sold all her other presents and brought a small flat on top of the newspaper offices. She became a local hero to the town of Shireton, and when the local elections came around, she was persuaded to run for councillor. With a huge following and the organiser as her campaign manager, she won by a huge landslide. Now, as Lucy approached her 30th birthday and the town was busy planning her surprise party, which she already knew about because of the organiser, Lucy was feeling very blue. 
In the last year, she had lost the spark and fight she once had. The newspaper was boring. Charlton was predictable, and Lucy felt lonely. The reason she was feeling so low was that, well, she knew how every day was going to pan out. This wonderful gift that had helped her through her achievements, like a proud parent nudging her into the right direction, was now a curse, weighing down on her. She tried not to look at it sometimes, but the responsibility of missing out on such indispensable knowledge won over her determination every time. Nothing was making her happy anymore. So it was with no surprise that she read the entry for her birthday on the evening before. It said, Wednesday, eight o'clock. Wake up with a feeling that you are standing on the edge of the abyss, waiting for a gentle push. Nine o'clock. Open cards. Eat breakfast. More depression. Ten o'clock. Decide to end life. Leave note. Water plants. Eleven o'clock. Arrive at New End Bridge. Climb the rails and contemplate the act of suicide. You feel nothing. The next day, she did exactly what the organiser said she would. The note took a while and she had to leave detailed instructions about work and the zoo. She arrived at the bridge at exactly 11 o'clock. She climbed over the guardrail and perched herself on the ledge. The wind was very strong so she held onto the rail with one hand and with the other brought the organiser out of her jacket pocket. If she was going down, so was this bloody thing, she thought triumphantly. It flickered into life, as if it knew what she was thinking. The screen showed the last entry again on the bridge, but then four words appeared after the last full stop. 11.01. Suddenly, you look around. Lucy carefully turned her head while still holding onto the rail. A man was on the other side of the bridge, standing on the opposite ledge, holding onto the opposite rail. Lucy caught him, looking around at almost the same time as she did. In his other hand, he was also holding a small, black, rectangular-shaped object. They stood there, on the ledge, watching each other, not daring to move, not daring to speak. Then finally, as the morning turned to afternoon, they both, in unison, decided to climb back onto the bridge. As they walked towards each other, they instantaneously threw their organisers over their shoulders when the machines descended down, down towards the river below. And before they hit the cold water, the machines sparked a neon blue light and then finally disappeared out of existence. Lucy and the man stared closely at one another, examining each other's faces slowly holding each other's hands before their lips met and they kissed. That's horrid, said Helen, screwing up her face and poking out her tongue. The old man laughed at her and shook his head. (laughs) One day you might want to be kissed, he said, getting up from the bed. Never, she said decisively. He tucked her in and switched the bedside lamp off. Good night, my girl, he said, 
and got up to leave. What what happened next? said Helen, with tiredness creeping slowly into her voice. No one knows. Lucy and the man on the bridge were never seen again. What do you think happened? The girl scrunched her face up as her mind went deep into her thoughts and the beginning of a dream. I, I think that she disappeared to live a life where she wouldn't have to think about what happens next. A happy life, with dogs and ice cream. Helen proclaimed, with her eyes half closed now. That's good enough, said the man quietly to himself. He closed the bedroom door, leaving his granddaughter to her dreams.